0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash
1: four keys and download your free copy. We are here to experiment and to learn. And if that is the purpose, then we have to constantly evolve to our own best version. Now, you could call that you know, changing, you can call that evolving, you can call it a natural process, and when we don't, I think we, we lose our creativity, we lose our, uh, uh, our momentum, we lose our place in the world, and we lose our purpose in the world, uh, whatever that is, and it's unique for everybody, and it's different.
0: Thank you
1: for having me.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your story by way of um, your publicist, Rob, who has been sending me lots of books and also lots of amazing guests. And when he told me a little bit about what you did and and I got to um, dig through your book, I was very intrigued. So I want to start with a question um, just from having read the beginning of your book uh, that I, I was really curious about. And that is, what did your parents do for a living? And how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with
1: your life and your career? Excellent question. Excellent question. So uh, my uh, dad started off uh, uh, as, uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a guy at the bank. He started working at a bank, but he had this entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, and actually, the story uh, about him coming to, uh, you know, to, to Tehran, which is, I'm, I'm, I was born in Iran, uh, is an interesting one. It had some influence on my life as well. So he came from Shiraz, which is a town uh, in the southern part of uh, Iran, to Tehran uh, with his dad when he was about seven years old or so. And on the way to Tehran, he asked my uh, my grandfather, why are we going to Tehran? And my grandfather's comment was, uh, uh, that in small water, and it's a saying in in, in Farsi, It says in small water, small fish will grow; in big water, big fish will grow. And I like my kids to be big fish. Hmm. So uh, he had that you know that kind of mentality and entrepreneurship. He started. I think I talk in the book about a story about him and and uh, and his brother starting a store that failed miserably. Uh, But he had the entrepreneurial spirit, uh, and at the same time, you know, he he wanted a stable life. Uh, So he joined a bank, and he moved up pretty much and became uh, one of the top three executives in a major bank in Iran. Uh, And after he retired at around 50, uh, he really began a consulting career working with a number of uh, leading companies, global companies, and so forth uh, as an advisor. Uh, my mom uh, was also one of the few uh, women who started working in Iran at a very early stage, uh, and uh, was educated and fascinated with with news. I would say she would read four or five hours of news and uh, you know stuff every day. Um, and that's uh, you know that that's kind of the, the the upbringing. I came to the U.S. around uh, when I was sixteen. And my parents were uh adamantly against it um because I was doing well at school and it wasn't uh and there was no revolution or anything in Iran that would uh cause me to wanna get out. Uh but I uh I had a uh kind of a desire, so I went out and got my passport, but it just needed their, their, their signature. I applied to a school and got accepted. Uh, but they wouldn't agree. So I went to my great uncle and, uh, uh, and and kind of talked to him about why I want to go. And he said, "Why do you want to go?" And I said, "Well, in small waters, small fish would grow." And he says, "Okay, don't. I, I got it." <laughs> <laughs> so that was the argument with my father, and uh, and that's how I got here. Wow. Okay. You know,
0: I have so many questions um, about sort of even growing up in the Middle East. And, you know, I'm curious what sort of misperceptions that you think, you know, Americans or people, you know, outside in the Western world have of the Middle East, just based on what we see in the media and what we see in the news. Um, Because this is just out of personal curiosity, like literally almost everything I think I know about the Middle East has come from anything I've seen on CNN. So I'm sure it's not entirely accurate.
1: (laughs) It's not accurate at all. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, if you if you canvass the the people and forget about the uh, um, the regimes, uh, you have extremely smart people with great ambition, like everywhere else in the world. I would say people want to. Uh, if you ask anybody on the face of the earth, uh, and you say what do you want to be, they want to be happy. Uh-huh. Uh, it's that definition of happiness that may change from place to place. Some want to be wealthy. Some want to have a great family. Uh, but people are pretty much the same around the world. And if you go and, and dig into religions, for a while, by the way, I used to teach philosophy in, in my earlier, earlier days. And I, I did read most of religions, and most of Eastern philosophies and so forth. And most of philosophers that are non-classical, uh, you know, religion-based uh, philosophers. And what I found was, you know, the foundation of all of them are pretty much the same. And and if you go back to people, they have the same basic desire. It is uh, the divisiveness of, of regimes and, and groups that are trying to take advantage of uh, of people because they're you know illiterate or uh, because uh, uh, you know because they use religion or they use other means to you know to kind of uh, manipulate them. Uh, which uh, which creates these uh, pockets of you know, terrorists or pockets of uh, you know uh, divisiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, corruption is pretty big in uh, in most of the Middle East. Uh, and one of the things that I always say is that uh, although you see all these arguments about like Israelis and Palestinians or Iranians and uh, and, and, and Arabs and so forth. Part of the problem is because they like to negotiate and they speak the same thing uh, you know like if you if you like uh, you know Palestine and israel they 're two feet apart, so <laughs> they come from the same background they they buy stuff at the same place they do the same stuff so it 's not that they 're that different it 's just that somehow the divisiveness that uh, our environments our politics or or folks within religion who want to manipulate people. Uh, are 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 creating those uh, those divisions, and it is uh, it's not uh, you know great news uh, for from CNN or Fox or whoever it's saying saying well all is good people are getting along mm-hmm. that's that, that's not news right uh, and uh, and when I say you know religious leaders it's not that all religion are bad I actually think it's a very good thing to have some foundational Uh, Pillars in 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 what you do and in your life. It's just like anything else. I could be uh, Running a company and I could be crooked and trying to take advantage of people Uh, The only difference is when I get into a bigger positions of power particularly with religion I have the ability to manipulate people at an entirely different level You know, I use God as my witness essentially Mm. and There's no higher power so uh, basically, I, I, I see uh, people are pretty much the same; they have the same desires, uh, but their environments uh, drives them to behave differently, uh, and uh, and it's those differences and those you know uh, kind of agendas that uh, that creates the mayhem, and mayhem is something that that is newsworthy. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me
0: um, is, you know, and I'd never thought about it this way until, you know, you told me the story about you coming to the United States. So, you know, immigrants, for the most part, take huge risks in leaving their countries to come to the United States and to build a certain life. And there's, you know, that that in and of itself is a very entrepreneurial thing to do. But I don't know if you've noticed this, and, and maybe you had the experience with your parents, but with Indian parents, the, the strange sort of paradoxical byproduct of that is that they discourage risk in their own children. Yes. And I'm curious. What, I just want to hear what you have to say about this.
1: Well, well it is true. If you look at the uh, Indian parents or even the Chinese or, or, or Persians, uh, we are thought to be engineers and doctors and lawyers pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Because those are safe positions essentially. Uh-huh. Uh, the assumption is if you're a doctor regardless of where you are and how the economy is, you're doing well. Uh, the same thing with engineers and, you know, in the, in the old days, obviously in those developing countries, engineers had a different level of respect. So, uh, uh, so those are pretty much risk averse situations that they want to put the kids in. Uh, the, uh, the fact is though that most of people outside of us look at us as this, uh, you know, place, which is. Truly, you could you could come in, and if you have the uh, you know if you have the uh, the intelligence and you work hard, um, you'll get someplace, and you could make it. Uh, I mean, look around you. How many how many CEOs of great companies such as Microsoft and others are Indians? Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand the Persians control over 400 billion dollars of assets. Uh, I mean, just just look around. And I think that the one of the reasons uh is, is this desire uh to kind of get ahead and and uh and do better uh and if if you look at it, a lot of them have actually used those engineering degrees uh to be able to do that mm-hmm. uh so it's kind of a dichotomy that the same thing that was the safe place has really uh propelled particularly in this day and age. Uh, a lot of the folks use that that kind of a base as the jumping uh, you know place mm. um so it is it is a dichotomy but i think uh, uh the the desire to be uh, living a better life um is is overcoming the fear essentially ah.
0: So with, with all this being the case, um, I'm curious, kind of, you know, from the perspective, you know, as somebody who's been an investor, as somebody who's been involved in multiple companies, and also sort of seeing where we're headed, in your mind, you know, what do the, the future of education and the future of work look like? And, and how do we prepare for it in a way that, you know, ensures that we're actually going to be okay?
1: So uh, I am, and actually I talk about this in my book towards the last chapter. And, and then there's another idea that didn't make it to the book, and, and I talked to some folks and say, "Oh, well, that's a great thing for the next book." <laughs> uh, so let me let me talk about this fear that, in, in terms of education, first, and in terms of where we're headed, uh, we uh, are, are now being bombarded with this fear of artificial intelligence and robotics and. Uh, you know, the knowledge workers are, you know, lots of different reports anywhere from a hundred million people to, uh, you know, to more or less are going to be out of work by the next five or ten years uh, because robots are going to take over. Uh, and uh, so the workplace is going to be considerably different. Uh, what I propose is if we, is it because we wanted that life? That we as people, as humanity, as a, as a race, we are creating those things. We, we are doing those in order to reduce the computational or taxation on our brain and get ready for the next evolution, which is going to be more around creativity and less around who is better because uh, as an attorney, they can process data better or they're faster in adding in math. Mm -hmm. so we are really extending our capabilities and I use the analogy of you know if you really want to look at it when when humans came up with uh, I don't know getting a, a knife they could have avoided that and just you know just use their teeth but they came up with a knife because it made their life easier we now are at a different place we have evolved from a physical nature and we need to evolve from a mental perspective, and that requires us to kind of get rid of some of the computational tasks and create things that would help us do that. So I believe that we have to embrace it, uh, embrace the the artificial intelligence, not necessarily be afraid of this uh, notion of, uh, uh, you know, the machines are going to replace us, the machines are going to eliminate us. Uh, and and embrace it as a race with this notion that it would help us get to the next place. Um, so now, if you t- look at the um, the fundamentals of education, I think there's a lot of stuff, and I look at a lot of deals and companies i work with, a lot of uh, big and small entities. I think there's phenomenal things going on, and I think there's one uh, fundamental thing, and this is the the thing I was saying. It could be, uh, you know, people are saying it should be in the next book. Uh, Is this notion of what we teach our students we teach our students to solve problems You know look at engineering classes. We now do the same thing with cases uh, and so forth in the MBA uh, programs we teach them to solve problems but leadership creativity and innovation is Really in finding the problems. It's not in solving the problems that means We, when we go and work for a company at an MBA, we trust somebody else in the chain, our managers, the leaders, the CEO, to say, ah, that is the problem. Joe, we need to solve that problem. Let's apply analytics or let's apply whatever tools or capabilities we want to solve that problem. So the, the generation that we create is a problem solver, not a problem finder. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that, uh, I think we'll, the, the next generation, we have to figure out a way that we will teach them how to find the problems, the right problems,
3: mm.
1: as opposed to just being problem solvers, which is a pretty, you know, it's, it's a different way of looking at the problem. Yeah, no doubt. You
0: know, it, it's funny you say that because <clears throat> my, my business partner, Brian, said, he said, have you noticed that school teaches people year after year to solve the same stupid problem that has already been solved he said the ninth grader who's in algebra this year will solve the same problem that the ninth grader who's in algebra next year solves
1: you got that exactly right you got that exactly right and they and they saw and we we are teaching them how to solve problems before we get them into the workforce Mm -hmm. but we never teach them how to find the problem (laughs) right
0: which seems like it's going to be essential for the future
1: uh, it, it is going to be essential for the future because with all this advent of big data all these avenues of gaining insight and discovering new things uh, in order to be innovative you have to look in the darkness uh, in the unknown I, I you know i i use the analogy of it has to be in the uh, uh, you know in, in the in, in the in the ignorance mm. that you find new things because facts only Get you to other facts facts can help you improve things but not innovate and discover new things Hmm. Um, but you know the advent of all these technology thing and 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 capabilities that's now being uh, being offered to us allows us to look at a lot more intelligence gain a lot more intelligence and those things will point to potential new problems, new value propositions, new innovations. So we have to be trained to be able to find those things. Hmm.
0: So you've spent time um, as a an educator. Uh, so I, I have to ask, you know, in your perspective, do you think that education in its current form can continue? Because I, I think, I mean, like there's no no doubt in my mind, I, I've had a lot of criticisms as a system because I jokingly say I'm a failed byproduct of the system. And we've had a lot of professors here. So, you know, I have the utmost respect for our educators. I think the system <laughs> is incredibly flawed um, because, it, one, it, it riddles people with debt, uh, which I, I think is a problem, uh, you know, it actually stifles opportunities. I'm curious, you know, from the perspective of somebody who has spent time in the system, what do you think needs to happen in order to change it so that it leads to its intended outcomes?
1: Um, it is a very problematic system, and, and it is for a number of reasons. Uh, one is uh, it is victim to political beliefs. Uh, so one group feels, well, we we just have to be, uh, uh, we have to provide that as a right. So you don't go on debt, you don't go in debt, and you don't, you know, and, and students wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have a problem. The other one says, well, it's something, it's not a right. If you want it, you got to pay for it. The counter argument is, well, if I don't pay for it and many others don't pay for it, then we have a country that is uneducated. So we fall behind. So it's kind of a circular motion, if you would, that, that we're stuck in. If you look at the early stage, uh, you know, K-12 kind of situation, uh, teachers are not being paid well. And uh, and a lot of good entrepreneurial uh, smart people don't really want to go to K-12 because it, it just doesn't make any money. Uh, they, they have a safe life, maybe, and that's true. this... Uh, Uh, you you know you can't you can't get rid of them and you know there are other you know um, situations where uh, you're you're kind of uh, you know when you go into the system it's hard to get rid of you because you can't get rid of the teachers essentially it's it's this tenure uh, idea and the same thing applies in colleges when 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 professors get to be tenured uh, it's essentially a job for life so you you know they stop kind of uh, growing and, uh, you know, they get into this routine, uh, the same, same book, same, same documents. They show up every, you know, Monday or Tuesday and show, you know, uh, kind of offer the same course. Uh, and what happens is after a while, those are stale, but, you know, you've got the situation. So the 10-year program has to, we have to re-examine that. Uh, it is no job is a right for anybody, <laughs> so that's that's one the tenure program. The second thing is we have to get over this notion that if it's a right or not a right, uh, and is it really money that should be uh, exchanged for the education, uh, or is it some sort of service which is money essentially? Mm-hmm. Time is money, um, and um, uh, and 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 you know, the other thing that I think difficult is is this notion that we don't have a consistent policy uh, over time. So every administration that comes in have their own uh, ideas, they come in, they do it for a few years, and before it really gets into any uh, any results, uh, well, now it's the testing that's important. Well, now testing is not important. Mm Um, the other thing is a social issue I think now am I giving you enough problems to solve <laughs> the the other thing is a social issue if you look at how we raise our kids these days if you even come you know, 13th out of 13th teams in a soccer game you get an award why so we teach our children that it's okay to be incompetent not to win not to get ahead and this generation, and the idea is, let's get them through the system, let's get them out, and yeah, they have a, they they have a degree. But when they get into the workplace, it's a different world. You're expected to perform. Nobody likes the person who's the number thirteenth. So it's the social effect of what we're doing, uh, the you know the way that we've structured this ten years, and uh, and obviously this. Uh, flip-flopping on, on strategy, uh, they're all contributing to this, uh, you know, to this confusion. Uh, I think if we agree on at least one or two of these pillars, the system would begin to change. So if you get rid of the, the 10 years, you begin to pay, you know, teachers better uh, in some form, uh, then you would get a better outcome. And that would change uh, in, in some form. Uh, if we adopt a policy that we can continue over time, that would change, <laughs> change the situation. So change has to happen from one angle, or like any other change. You've you got to move the ball from some one direction, mm-hmm. and then it's moving. Now, you know, like in a soccer game, if you, if you kick the ball, at least you're in play. But we just pass the ball in a very small circle, and it's really not going towards the goal. It's just, it's just going the same circle.
4: Without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else, Custom Spray Five and One only from Rust-Oleum.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh.
4: absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated wow, did we just write an ad? yes
2: Bombus, big comfort for everyone go to bombuscom slash ACAST and use code ACAST
3: for 20% off your first purchase
0: as creators, we're always on the move whether it's a live podcast event a pop-up shop or a workshop we're constantly interacting with community and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com tapiphone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Hmm. Well, um, well, you know, what I'd like to do is, is have you walk us through sort of the trajectory of your career and how it has led to you doing the work that you're doing today. Um, you know what the significant inflection points were. And also I'm curious how philosophy has informed the decisions you've made, um, you know, in your business career.
1: Uh, I would say philosophy has uh, informed it quite a bit. Uh, I, I think uh, let me let me give you a little bit of background of uh, of, of where I started. And uh, I have a friend uh, who uh, told me a while back. He said, Sid, I don't know, you you kind of gracefully go from one thing to another. Uh, that's the way she described it in, in terms of change. And I really didn't appreciate that uh, until recently. And it's not, I I wouldn't say it's not graceful. It is purposeful. And because it's purposeful, it appears to be graceful, (laughs) meaning meaning that I I do go through evaluating what I'm doing and and kind of, uh, you know, at times hesitating, at times, you know, pivoting, at times going with the probability and shifting and switching until I find You know, that 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 place that I think it's uh, it's a reasonably good plateau and I do expect to change again. So if you look at my history, I started my first company when I was 21. Then um, then I joined after that a a consulting firm when uh, uh, when I exited that and it was a small consulting firm, six people. We built it to about 250, 300 people uh, nationwide and I became the partner. And when I got there, I really felt, wait a minute, you know, this is like I was 26, 27 years old. And I said, you know, these guys over there are making a lot of money through these equity deals. Those were, the, those were the days of leverage buyouts. Why? It doesn't make sense for me to work all these hours. And I was working 100 hour weeks. So that kind of triggered this notion that there is a better place. There, there is a transition that needs to happen. And then I started my own company and I did turnaround work for a while. And then I became uh, and initially I didn't have the money. So I had, you know, syndicated deals and I would get other people's money. And along the way, I was bamboozled a few times and I failed at a couple and I succeeded at a couple more. Um, and in that period, I also started kind of becoming the principal investor after a while because, you know, that was uh, that was more lucrative and I had more control. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I began to essentially, uh, kind of start companies. And it, 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 it happened with, um, one day I had a client, it was a court, um, the Riverside County courts, um, uh, and we had done some work with the courts with a partner that I had uh, out of, uh, out of Pittsburgh. We had an office in Pittsburgh at that time. Uh, I'd done a lot of work. Uh, with the courts, and we would go in and essentially would look at uh their operations almost every year, and we'll say hey, here's the budgeting requirements and then they will use our report uh which was pretty rigorous about what's what our needs and ba blah, blah blah and then they'll go secure the budget with the state and we'll do this with a lot of different uh a lot of different courts. And one day, I was meeting with a guy named Mike, uh, who is the CEO of of the Riverside Course, and I said, Mike, you know, we're doing this for you every every year. I love the money, but I think there's a better way of doing this. You know, if we have a software program, and we call it a reengineering software program, you could see what your workload is, where you need it, and you could basically assign the right people to the right time. And if your workload is going up, you can clearly see you need more people and it's very quantitative. You could take it to the state and say, see, we need more people. Um, and it's an ongoing thing and you could start doing it. And uh, I said, oh, that's a great idea. Uh, I said, okay, what we could do is do an RFP and hire a software programmer or a team to do this for you. And he said, no, 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 I don't want you to do that. You just go do it. I said, but, and I said, no, but go do it. So we came out, I called my partner I said, I guess we're in the software business. <laughs> so we hired a a couple of you know a couple of software people. Uh and we did this and um, and we won the uh the California Cleps Award, Innovation Award in Government. Uh and they're now I think uh I, I sold that company, but I think there were like ninety-six quarts on it or something. Which was the first process re engineering idea of software ever developed. Uh my partner used to kid around and say, Well, you have a tendency of taking off the plane without having built the landing gears. <laughs> uh, and he's right. So I've, I've done that in, in my life. So uh, that kind of ended up being in a position of building now companies, <laughs> this early stage stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I had an interesting experience in the 2000 with a company called Competitive Knowledge. And we actually were one of the first people that uh, coined the phrase of executive dashboard. Uh, And before, you know, most of the big companies, now it's a pretty, you know, well-known phrase that people use, executive dashboards that displays information. Uh, And uh, and basically, uh, create a company called competitive knowledge, very early stages in the internet. And the idea was to aggregate data and create benchmarks across an industry, which is now a lot of companies are trying to do, but we were ahead of our time. Uh, and uh, we did get some venture funding, that was the first time that uh, we actually, you know, I actually went uh, you know, to the venture community uh, and it, uh, it flat, uh, uh, you know, it failed in the 2000 because um, I just didn't see it, you know, working. And I was the major, uh, major investor and the major shareholder. Uh, and I shared with my uh, my board that I just don't think it would work. And I actually wrote a check back to some of them, which was unheard of in those days. You know, every CEO was trying to push through it. So it's the failures as well as the uh, uh, as well as the successes that that helps you kind of shape things. And I think it's the failures uh, that help you. Uh, really learn. You know, there's a phrase in in Silicon Valley that people say, "Oh, fail often, fail fast." I don't know if you've heard that. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's not fail often, fail fast. It's learn often, learn fast. So the focus is not on the failing. The focus is on the learning. Uh, so you see a lot of, you know, uh, because failure is also toxic in big companies. Although you know, everybody you know provides lip service around it because it's the, because we focus on the failure if focus what did we learn from that activity that we did if you're talking about experimentation or innovation what did we do to learn something out of it and that essentially i think is something that has its roots going back to your question in 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 the world of philosophy and in the world of we are here to experiment and to learn and if that is the purpose then we have to constantly evolve to our own best version. Now you could call that, you know, changing. You can call that evolving. You could call it a natural process. And when we don't, I think we we lose our creativity. We lose our uh, uh, our momentum. We lose our place in the world, and we lose our purpose in the world. Uh, whatever that is, and it's unique for everybody, and it's different. Um so if you look at that you know process essentially after that I did um uh, we you know bought a company uh, a car with a couple of uh couple of people uh and uh, basically took that and we increased the uh, uh the revenue by about thirty fold in uh, about two and a half years three years short of three years, which was phenomenal in terms of strategy, but it was fundamentally around using data using analytics, getting to an insight and getting ahead of the competition. Uh, and then I became an angel investor, which was a phenomenal time because I learned a lot from a lot of uh, a lot of entrepreneurs. I would look at maybe around 1,200, 1,500 businesses a year uh, as I was the president of the Tech Coast Angels in Orange County and uh, I had lots of conversations uh, around various business models, what works, what didn't. And that kind of, I think, was a really a, a few years of tremendous amount of knowledge from real-life experiences. Hmm. Uh, and I joined KPMG uh, about five years ago as a result of uh, one of my companies that was sold to, to KPMG, which was around data analytics and unstructured data analytics, getting, getting insight out of that. Wow. So, lots of questions lots of come questions from that.
0: Um, <laughs> so, one of the things that, I, that I'm most curious about when I when I speak to people who have invested in a lot of companies is what are the common sort of characteristics that you have seen in the people that you've invested in that have been wildly successful?
1: I hate the word uh, uh, coachability. <laughs> I, I absolutely do because, you know, it's just... But uh, there, is, there is something to it. It's if the the uh, the entrepreneur uh, believes that what they're getting and selects you know, purposely goes after those what they're getting from an investor is really beyond the money it's not the money that solves the problem so if the if the entrepreneur believes that if you get more intelligence around the table you get more connections and networks around the table. You would have a better product at the end as opposed to I know what I'm doing. You just give me the money and shut up. Most of those guys that say give me the money and shut up are people that haven't gone through the sequences. So so they waste time and they waste the money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of times when, you know, people ask me to be on the board of a company, you know, the first thing I tell them is, uh, here's the thing. You guys Uh, let's say I live in Orange County, which is about an hour and a half, an hour away from from Los Angeles, and it's always filled with traffic. (laughs) I'll say, I have traveled this road many, many times. I know what time to leave, and I know where the traffic jams happen, and I usually know which exits I should get out of and when to get back. And that does two things for me. One is, I'll get there faster while you're sitting in traffic. And the second is, I don't spend the fuel as much. So that's kind of like time and money, money being the venture or the investments that goes in, and the time is whoever gets there first has an advantage from a business perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to go and try this out and learn how, where to get in and where to get out and what to do yourself, that means you're wasting your time and we are wasting the energy and the money. Hmm. So I think the entrepreneurs that have that quality of understanding, hey, this idiot or <laughs> the investor has paid a lot of money to learn this and maybe I can stand on his shoulder. To get to the next day. So that's, that's one uh, thing. The second then, I have never, and, and some people may have, I have never seen, I have never been involved with a company that, based on the first business model, they went all the way to an exit. Wow. It has evolved multiple times, changed multiple times. And there is a disease I call the founderitis disease. And the founderitis disease is somebody had come up with an idea and they think this is the greatest idea since sliced bread and therefore it should be maintained as it was originally conceived, although the market isn't responding. So they fall in love with their own ideas and they don't evolve. The good guys, the ones that are successful, evolve multiple times. They change the idea because, hey, no idea is perfect at inception. And because the world is changing, consumer behavior is changing, others are innovating, competitors aren't asleep, they're doing things too. You've got to evolve it until you really make some really headway. And that's what I call staying relevant. You've got to always evolve to stay relevant. Wow.
0: So, one other question for you: um, How do you think about wealth and money after having, you know, um, sold multiple companies? Uh, has it changed your perspective on it? You know, because it just—I you know, feel like every time I talk to somebody who has, has, you know, gotten to the point where money is no longer an issue in their life, you, know, you always hear the sort of cliche of "Yeah, it doesn't solve all your problems." But you know, I think my my copywriter had a really good face. He's like, I'd rather be rich and miserable and poor and unhappy. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious, kind of, how your perspective on all of this. changes um with time
1: well the the first thing is uh not having money really sucks (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know it creates a lot of problems uh you know from from your health to raising your kids to worrying all the time to getting horrible jobs to having to uh um, you know, uh, listen to your boss, say whatever they want you're you are you are kind of a subject if you would. uh so I've always said, and uh, you know I, I told this to my wife when we got married I said, uh, how do I say this so that it's uh it's airworthy? Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me find a phrase that's more uh you've gotta always have... Uh, this uh, maybe maybe screw you money would be a better way of putting it. For sure. You, you know, you, you got to have enough to, to not be subjected to others, that you have a choice. And if you choose to stay and do something, it's out of your choice. So what money does, essentially it provides you with choices. Uh, it's a broader range of choices. Uh, it allows you that if you're a creative person to be, more creative, if, uh, if you're an analytical person to spend time there without fear of going hungry. Uh, so, uh, as I said, being poor sucks. Now, having money can get to your head, though. That's the problem. Uh, obviously, nobody uh, nobody can claim that if you're not worried about things, uh, it's a bad thing. It's a great thing to have money and be, be comfortable. Some people, though, get... Uh, uh, get this uh, and i've had I, I have friends who are worth a couple hundred million bucks and i've seen them be extremely nervous because they'll say what if i don't have it if i lose it what's going to happen well man how much can you eat <laughs> how much do you need so it has this danger of as opposed to you driving it it becomes the driver and you become the slave of it uh, and and that's and that again is a choice that that is a that's an inflection point that a because you have money you think that your opinions are much better than others <laughs> so your ego gets a little bit hefty and you, you start not listening you start you know being uh, you start growing because you've got this opinion and you think hey I did this and it worked and therefore anything else that I do will work. So it's uh, that's one, so ego starts becoming a problem in your learning uh path. The second is this notion of you're, you're afraid of what if I don't have it and And that becomes uh, I think, another weakness um, and And you could see this in in you know just this trend. If you look at some of the, and I, I don't want to name names, but you could research them or your audience could research them, some people who've had great successes. At one business, they've made lots of money, and then they've done the second one or the third one as a serial entrepreneur. And the second or the third one has been miserable because they think that since they made money, now every decision they make is accurate mm-hmm. and right. Uh, so that happens, you know. If you look at their personal life, they begin to have issues with, you know, their their kids and wives and so forth. There are people, obviously, that have a Particular level of grace that, uh, that handle it, uh, and I think it's a personal thing of what the point of ego and what the point of fears are. You know, if you have nothing and you all of a sudden have a hundred thousand dollars a year job or make that much money, then you may you may get there. And somebody else may be uh, like a Warren Buffett and uh, and always learn and always be open to change and and not let it get to his head. And there are not that many of those guys. Hmm.
0: Wow. Um, so I think that makes a, a perfect segue to uh, let you talk a little bit about your book because I realized I've just completely drilled drilled you for all these these questions without letting you talk very much about the Caterpillar's Edge. Uh, but I think that really makes sort of a nice segue to talk about the principles. You know where it came from, what the idea is, and, and what the implications are for for people who are listening.
1: Yeah. So uh, if you look at the uh, the background that I just described, uh, I have. Uh, I've been uh, the founder, I've been the early stage guy, I have worked in my early days with big companies as a consultant, uh, the IBMs and the Federal Reserve Banks of the world Uh, and then I had been in a turnaround business in middle size and then the latest part of uh, uh, my life before I joined uh, KPMG as a 27 or so billion dollar company was focused on early stage companies, a man and a laptop and a lot of you know rapid company building and, and new ideas and innovation. And the last part was really big company. So it was a circle back to a world that I had experienced when I was 25 or 26 years old when I was started. And what I have seen is an amazing continuity of, Behavior and what I mean is the way that people were managing, uh, strategizing, approaching uh, growth and company building is pretty much the same, follows the same principles as of 50 60 years ago. We still train the MBAs the same way. We take a year, year and a half to process things and get some, you know, graphs and charts and take them to the boards and very much the same stuff. Uh, At the same time, we have this notion of big data and there's a lot of hoopla around it. People say, oh, there's big data. Well, data has always been big. You know, I remember when I started my career. I had, you know, uh, these uh, spreadsheets that you would fill out by hand and there were 72 pages and it'll take us uh, a week or so to kind of calculate the numbers and you get to the last page and say this doesn't make any sense and you had to redo it. The data was big. It was big for us. So somebody came up with a D-base 2 and then we would put the stuff in there and great, it would solve the problem. So we could comprehend the data. So that solved the problem essentially. Uh, then we got into, ah, oh, if we could do this, can we get our supply chain folks in there? Can we expand? And that needed technology to solve that big data problem again. And uh, people like Oracle and so forth came up with a relational database. Boom, we solved the problem. Uh, then came, you know, other things. Now it's the IoT, Internet of Things, and every object is being connected and generating data massively. The, prob- the issue is comprehension, essentially. So what I saw was that we're focusing a lot on the big data stuff and analytics and competing on analytics without really focusing on competing on analytically informed strategies. That means we've got to plan in a way that is different than what we did in the past. We've got to get rid of the addictions that we've had in terms of our, you know, here's the budgeting process. That's the way it works. Here's. We want to do innovation. Okay, let's fit it within the budgeting process. Uh, it takes a year to do this. We've got to, uh, we've got to act at these time frames. We have biases around, oh, we're great. We're doing great. We've always been doing it. It doesn't work in our business. Our team is incompetent. So, those are all biases and orthodoxies that we come to the table. The, if we focus on the comprehension of all of this new stuff, data that provides new knowledge, and we combine the two, and we believe that the organization is a living entity, just like a human body, which means it can evolve and should evolve all the time, then there is a new way of approaching planning and building and competing. Uh, And so that became essentially... Uh, an outcome of what I had seen over the years that there is an addiction There's this hoopla going on over here, but if we really change the way we view and uh, the world and 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 planning and execution and and doing things or Shift our mind that would lead to shifting our or changing our actions and a different way of of competing Uh, so That's essentially where the book came out. I use the analogy of the butterfly because the butterfly and the caterpillar uh, are phenomenal examples of evolution. So a caterpillar changes or evolves multiple times. It has about 4,000 or so muscles, which is uh, four or five times uh, humans. And it manages to change all these muscles to go from one form to another and then completely become a different species. It does it incrementally. And it in that process it deals with a lot of dangers, a lot of challenges. So I use that analogy essentially to build a lot of uh, uh, ideas, and I use personal stories in the book to kind of kind of drive uh, the ideas a little further, or say, here's why I think this is the right way of doing it. Hmm. Uh, and uh, what I found, though, interesting, frankly, originally this book, and this book has evolved about you know ten or twelve times before it got to what it what it got. It was originally a very academic thing; it was hard to read. Um, but uh, if you've read the book, you could see that it's uh, it's now a pretty fast read. Uh, what I found, though, is it was originally written for an audience of CEOs, uh, but I see a lot of younger folks. Uh, that are uh, striving to be leaders they're managers, they like this change they like to be a better version of themselves Uh, have also adopted the book and and the book has resonated with them so uh, when when people now ask who is the audience I think the audience uh, of the book are those with an attitude for being a better unique self uh, unique version of themselves and that includes their company, that includes their life, that includes who they are, because some of the concepts really, truly applies to us as individuals as well.
0: Wow. Well, so this has been really, really amazing and incredibly insightful. So, um, I want to finish with my very last question, which is how we finish all our interviews with The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Authenticity. It is being the version that they are. That is make that that makes them unmistakable, and it makes them different from every every other thing. It makes them unique. Uh, not because and, and this doesn't authenticity doesn't mean that you are uh, you are your better version of yourself. That means is uh, uh, is Picasso authentic? Yeah, they are. Uh, is uh, Bill Gates is uh, uh, is uh, Steve Jobs uh, even uh, wherever you sit with your political uh, beliefs is Donald Trump authentic? yeah Now, authentic that doesn't necessarily mean uh, truthful doesn't necessarily mean uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they are just or righteous or uh, but they are authentic in this in, in their own way, and that makes them unmistakable.
0: Well, this has been uh, absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I really, really, I'm, I'm glad Rob connected us. I've enjoyed our chat so much. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share
1: your stories I, with our listeners. I, I hope it did the trick for you and, uh, and, <laughs> and it would be helpful to your audience.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming?
3: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel?